0: Hey guys. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this episode today with Meg from Flourishing Motherhood. Okay. Let's go back to like November 2022 and I'm scrolling through my Instagram and I see one of Meg's posts. And it's like real it's like going viral so fast and there's like zillions of comments. Well, I had just downloaded this app that was like reels repost or whatever where you could like repost someone's reel to your account so i like jumped on it cuz i was like this is amazing content meg's hilarious i'm going to give a shout out to flourishing motherhood and i post it on my instagram while it like also goes viral on my page and everyone else's page that then shared it and it's hilarious. So I want you to like just go hang out on Instagram at Flourishing Motherhood or like TikTok, she's at Flourishing Mother and just go check out some of her. I think she said it was like her second most viral reel. Another one was on the business of being born. Today's episode, we talk all about being an entrepreneur and a content creator and an influencer while being a mom, and then also getting like booted out of the birth center, boo, to a hospital, and then having two home births after that experience. So we just talk about a lot. We had a lot of fun, and I'm so excited to share Meg and Flourishing Motherhood with you guys today. All right, let's get to it. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. So like, let's say you're pregnant. That's why you're listening to the birth story podcast and you're preparing for a hospital birth that's upcoming. And of course, this podcast gives you tons of free information, right? But like, do you really understand the stages of labor? How to know when you're in labor? What if you have to have an induction? What about a cesarean section? What about all of the decisions that you have to make once you get to the hospital? So you get there and then they put you in triage. Birth Story Academy walks you through all the things that happen, like that rapid fire with like monitoring and blood work and questions and IV ports and do you want an epidural? I don't know, do you? In Birth Story Academy, we literally break down all of those decisions Pros, cons, risks, benefits, intuition. And like we get into it. We make birth plans. We do birth visions. We listen to birth affirmations and parenting affirmations. And like at the end of it, like you know exactly what's going to happen when you go into labor and when you get to the hospital. What's gonna happen after you give birth? Newborn care preferences. How to take care of your baby. I guess what I'm getting at is If you're not in Birth Story Academy, what's your plan? I want you to come join me in Birth Story Academy and let me walk you through all of the decisions that you have to make if you're having a hospital birth and how to have body autonomy and how to have informed consent and informed refusal. I'm gonna teach you and your partner, if you have one, everything that you need to know about birthing in a hospital so that you can walk in that door with some swagger, with some confidence, wash that anxiety away, Because you learned everything you needed to learn in Birth Story Academy, and you are ready to crush that birth. Okay, let's do it. And let's get to this episode. Hey,
1: Meg, welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. How are you? Hi, Heidi. I'm doing well. How are you doing?
0: I am so good. I'm really excited to dig into like flourishing motherhood and all that you've done with like TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and being an influencer and some of my favorite reels. And we're going to talk about your three birth stories today and how different it is from like birth center and Mm. hospital and then going home um, for your last two births. So thanks for being here.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. It's so funny to hear you call me influencer because I still am not one in my brain, but my numbers are now getting up there. So I guess I am. Yeah, you're an
0: influencer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was like,
0: I influenced you to be here today. So I will take that (laughs) do.
1: 100%. 100%. <laughs>
0: so Meg, let's tell everybody um, like a little bit outside of Influencer, who you are, like where you're at in the country and kind of what you're doing with your day-to-day life.
1: Yeah. So I live um, in coastal Virginia. So near Virginia beach. Um, I moved out here because my husband was in the Navy, um, just got out recently, but we are in a Navy transplant family. And we just love it here so much because, um, a little bit about me and what I do is I, I I consider myself an urban homesteader. So I have this awesome house zone for chickens. Um, it is urban. So I live in a neighborhood, but I've like used my land to like put like eight garden beds in it and a ton of fruit trees and blueberry bushes. And so I have actually recently gotten a lot of traction just on social media for um, urban homesteading. But I also really love to make my own food from scratch. I do a lot about, I do a lot with sourdough and I homeschool three kids and create content. Awesome. Okay. How, in the, what is going on with
0: sourdough? Like all of a sudden my entire feed is <laughs> like people making sourdough
1: and I don't really cook that much. <laughs> so. Dude, it's... I swear 2020, like 2020, there's something about that year and everyone having to stay at home, where everyone became a bread maker, to the point where there was like no more flour left. Not because of food shortages, because everyone was committed to learning sourdough, and I was one of those people.
0: Yeah. Well, I watch a lot of these videos, and it like it's tremendous amount of work. So maybe you'll sell it someday to the
1: neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, I would really, I would love to. I am, I am i I've, I have these like dreams of, of having a real homestead one day, and then creating this little like uh, basically farmer's market, like in my yard where I could like sell my own milk and cheese and bread and all these things.
0: Oh, I love it. Okay. So you guys, one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is called, it's from NPR and it's called How I Built This with Guy Raz. And my absolute favorite episode of this entire podcast is on chicken salad chick. (laughs) This... (gasps) Um, I can't even remember her name now, but like, it was like the most amazing episode ever, but she literally like started making chicken salad in her kitchen and selling it to her neighborhood friends. And then they were like, this is amazing. And like, can you sell it at the school? And then can you sell it? You know? So anyway, you should listen to that episode and see how my
1: sister is obsessed with her.
0: I mean, I'm obsessed with chicken salad chick and this, the story, like, I mean, what an amazing business person,
1: right? So
0: cool. It is so cool. How did you get into like urban homesteading though? Like if you were kind of the spouse of someone in the Navy and moving around, like where did that interest even get sparked from?
1: Well, it's funny because I I actually grew up, both my parents are city slickers. So my mom's from Detroit, like inner city-ish area. My dad's from like inner city New York and neither of them had that kind of lifestyle whatsoever. But I distinctly remember growing up like outside New York city and dreaming about having ducklings and chicks. And I would always save my fruit pits from what I was eating. And I would bury them in the property that we lived at in Yonkers. And I would put little like beach toys over them to mark where they were because I was convinced I was going to like grow my own fruit. And so I just really feel like it was like a God given passion since I was a kid so when I um, moved into this house in Virginia, there was this giant raised garden bed in the backyard, and the person who lived here before me had planted. It's called edible landscaping. So he landscaped with things that you could actually eat. He had these like roseberry bushes that were um, rosemary bushes outside the door and by the window, so that when you open the window, you could like smell it. And he was a chef, so he he had this, he's like just this amazing setup, and I was like. We didn't know that that was there until we basically bought the house, but I was like, oh my gosh, like that kind of kickstarted everything.
0: Oh, that is so incredible. What a gift. Um, Do you guys keep in
1: touch? No, we don't keep in touch with the home. He would be probably horrified at how um, our yard looks now, but I've just added (laughs) so many guard beds to it now. I'm like, this is my personality now. So I've like ruined your entire front lawn. With garden beds. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, Before we jumped on, I was telling Meg about how I do, like, tower gardening with aeroponics because we live so center city, like— 0.17, 0.17, like you can barely fit our house and our guest house on this tiny plot of land that we have, and so everything is like plugged in on my deck. All these like tower gardens, so I may I grow the seedlings and then I grow everything in a tower. <laughs> that's a, that's... Dude, that
1: is actually like an epic. I I like love helping equip people who have really small spaces. I don't know a ton about tower gardening, but I love that you have the option to be able to do that because people often think. Well, I can only, people often think I can only have a garden if I have land. And that's why urban, like you're, so you're an urban gardener. Like mm-hmm. you have, you're
0: growing it. You're doing yeah. the thing. We get, we do all of our herbs and then we do flowers and then we do vegetables. And the joke at our house is like, are we going to get to eat it or are the dog's going to get to it first? Because <laughs> <So>, <laughs> they're chickens. Yes. Yeah. They really like to go up there. Well, um. Let's start with Flora's birth, okay? So you're first, and like I also want to know, like, when did flourishing motherhood come into existence? Like, and what which child brought you to your blog and your website and your YouTube channel? Like, when you kind of designed and kind of started creating content, was that after all three were born or somewhere in between the three?
1: Flourishing actually is the meaning of my first daughter's name. So Flora's name means flourishing. And uh, her full name is Florence. And I had her and really just kind of started to do a deep dive into um just like holistic, healthy living, because you know kids do that to you. And I started like kind of accruing all this like knowledge and information. And my best friend was like, You really should start a blog or start taking your social media more seriously. And so I used Flora's name for flourishing motherhood and i just wanted to create um practical ways for moms to be able to flourish while they're in motherhood because i felt like there was this misunderstanding in our culture that once you became a mom it just it totally consumed you and zapped any kind of life or hobbies or or you know dreams that you have, like it zapped them, and I'm like, no, you can like flourish in your motherhood, and I'm experiencing it now, and it's amazing. I just want to help everyone else do it. Yeah, I love
0: that you said that. Some of the most remarkable things that I have done in my life, and the most noteworthy, were when I had tiny babies and toddlers, and when I really didn't think I had time to to do anything. But when I set aside time for myself and to like dream and to write, like I made some beautiful things, right? And I really think it's important that as parents that we really share that, like it is possible. It's going to be really hard, but it is possible to still dream and to still create and to still do and to flourish, you know, as mothers. I think it is so important. So
1: 10%.
0: Your IG, I know, is Flourishing Motherhood, and so is your YouTube channel, right? And your website, flourishingmotherhood.com. The only Mm -hmm. place where we take a diversion is on TikTok, y'all. So it's Flourishing Mother, right?
1: Yes, Flourishing Mother, because they there wasn't enough characters.
0: <laughs> I know. Dang, TikTok. So you can find Meg at Flourishing Motherhood everywhere. And if you are a TikTok gal, then just go straight over to Flourishing Mother and just stop writing from there. <laughs> this birth story of yours, you wrote in about it a little bit, and it's wild to me. And so you got pregnant and were planning to birth at a birth center, So talk to me about that, like versus like a naval hospital, let's say, or a regular hospital or a home birth. What brought you to a birth center?
1: So my husband and I weren't really expecting to have kids and it was a huge shock to find out we were pregnant. Um, So we had to kind of do a deep dive into what, yeah, what kind, we had never talked birth before. So we had to do a deep dive into what kind of birth we wanted. And I know that we were not leaning towards the hospital because when I was in college, I watched this documentary about the business of being born. And I saw just how this cascade of interventions happens when a lot of times when women walk into the hospital, they kind of lose their autonomy a little bit. And unless you're super duper prepared, and I wasn't, I was, I was just felt like I was being thrown into, you know, an ocean and not knowing how to swim. So I found a birth center nearby and I just figured that would be the best middle ground to have, you know, any kind of help if I needed interventions, but still be able to have a lot of autonomy over my body.
0: I love the business of being born. This is my 19th year of being a doula. And when I was like a young baby doula and people would hire me, the first thing I would do is I would ship them a DVD. This is like back in the day. Wow. And I would like ship them a DVD and I would say, like, this is how we're gonna start before we do your prenatal visits. Like I want you to have this data and this education because everything wasn't readily available, like on blogs or social media or Instagrams yet. So this was, you know, Ricky Lake (laughs) kind of, kind of changed everything, She changed everything right with this documentary. And so you guys, if you haven't seen it, I mean, now I'm sure you can just watch it on netflix or something i don't know but business of being born um how in the world
1: yeah how did you find it i it's so crazy i was a college and i think i was 19 and i was on youtube with my best friend we were in a dorm and i remember watching it on my laptop in my dorm and it just like it like lit something in me because i was kind of studying to be pre-med i have my my background is a health science that's the degree i was getting Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the first time I realized how insurance companies work with our health and wellness and how things aren't always how they seem.
0: It is insane to me. I encapsulate my clients' placentas and, that want them to have be encapsulated. And even if they don't, I'm like, well, just let me bring it home and you can like plant it in your garden with a tree or, you know, some sort of like fruiting something. And they're like, okay, well, why wouldn't we just throw it away? And I'm like, because they're going to charge you $900 to dispose of your placenta and then like placenta. another $600 to send it to pathology. So if you really break down your insurance company's bill, like just when it comes to your Placenta, like if you don't do anything with it, it's going to cost you a lot of money, and then you're paying probably ten or twenty percent or part of your deductible towards that. And so I'm like, just let me encapsulate your placenta. It's like three hundred, one hundred percent. You know? <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Or let me bring it home and just bury it, right? If you're, hopefully your dogs won't dig it up, but, um, so, so you found your way to YouTube and you found your way to this, um, documentary and then eventually to this birth center and you said it was an unexpected pregnancy. So, um, how did your pregnancy go? Like, were you relatively healthy?
1: No, no, it was, um, for your prior to my pregnancy, I actually just had major surgery. So I had something called a laparotomy where they cut me from my belly button down my pubic bone. Because I had a massive tumor growing on my right ovary, so I went from almost having a partial hysterectomy to getting pregnant four months later, which was just insane to everyone. Then, after I got pregnant, had um, hyperemesis, so I had H.G., and I was just blindsided. Like I think I started throwing up when I was five weeks pregnant, and I stopped throwing up when I was thirty-five weeks. So for thirty straight weeks, I was just insanely sick and I took all the meds for being like a crunchy mom who is kind of tries to do things her own way. I was like give me the zofran, give me the diclegis, like anything that will help me survive this pregnancy.
0: So the question I have for you is did it help?
1: I you know, it took the edge off of it. I remember being 30 weeks and I tried getting off of the meds cuz I just figured I think I'm far enough along now and I remember throwing up the whole day. So I definitely think it took the edge off of being sick, but I 100% felt like I had the flu 24-7, regardless of if I was vomiting or not. I just felt awful.
0: Yeah. Okay, now I know where this story ends. So this is where I'm like, I'm now I'm starting to get confused because how, I guess this is a great question. If you're so sick and you are vomiting every day, how are you getting proper nutrition in?
1: Yeah. So that's something that, you know, me and my midwives talked about a lot because I was gaining weight and they had me keep, I was gaining weight pretty rapidly. They had me keep a food journal, um, to like see the different kinds of things I was eating. But I, the only thing that really helped with my insane nausea was like snacking. I would just snack all the time. And even though I would lose it. I would end up losing it at one point in the day or at three points in the day, whenever it happened. The only things that I could really eat and keep down was like, you know, crackers and um, fruit and like basically carbs. Like I tried to eat protein, but my body was like, Brr. so I just, yeah, I ate a lot of carbs and my, my midwife explained that your body actually absorbs a lot of food within the first 15 to 30 minutes of eating your body absorbs like a lot of the calories and a lot of the nutrients. But like the longer it sat in my stomach, the more I would get. So I would throw up the food, but I would still gain the weight.
0: Wow. Okay. Was that surprising to you?
1: It was surprising. It was disappointing because I just felt, I guess I felt powerless because I I didn't feel like I had control of what I was, what my body would let me eat. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I couldn't control the weight gain that my midwives really wanted me to control because I was just like. I'm doing the best I can. You could read my food journals. Like I'm trying to eat protein. It doesn't sit well with me. Like I'm snacking, but like, you don't want me to gain weight. So I'm trying not to snack. But when I don't snack, I throw up more. It was just, I felt so out of control.
0: Yeah. Did they at the birth center do tests for like gestational diabetes?
1: Yeah, which I thought for sure I had gestational diabetes and I didn't. Not not, not any of my pregnancies did I have that.
0: Yeah, I think the re- I, I knew you were going to say no. And the reason that I asked you that is because I think it's really, really important for listeners to hear. Like a lot of people will get gestational diabetes and then they'll like blame it on themselves, right? And I'm like, no, listen to Meg right here. She's throwing up. She's just eating carbs, no gestational diabetes, right? Like, yeah, Like this really, really, really has a lot to do with genetics. It has a lot to do with your placenta. It has to do with got like risk factors later on in life. It has very little to do with, well, I'm just sitting around eating carbs in the middle of my pregnancy. So right. I think what we need to focus on more, and that's why I'd ask a question around nutrition, right? Like it's how do we get this the proper nutrition in? And so even though you were throwing up, you were gaining weight, you were getting carbs in. Do you think you were getting
1: enough like fruits and vegetables in though? I was, I, I just, I did a lot of, I really craved mangoes in particular. I ate probably a mango every single day mm-hmm. and really crunchy salads. So I was eating those like bagged salads. I, I was working full time at the, at when I was pregnant the first time. And I would get those like bagged salad mixes and I would just make them at my desk and like devour the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, see, that's, those are really good tips though. There is something about mangoes. I haven't researched it in a long time, but that is a very normal pregnancy craving. So Oh wow. I'm just not remembering what's in mangoes, but there's a lot of people that just like, are like, I never really ate a lot of mangoes and then devoured mangoes and mango smoothies and mango juice, like the whole time they're pregnant. So. Maybe by the time I publish your episode, Meg, I will have put it in the show notes. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Um, So your midwives were on you about this weight gain. Was it possible for you to decline weight checks?
1: No, no. They were very, my very first appointment with them, they were very much on my weight. And yeah, there was no way to decline the weight. I actually talked to them previously, like when I first became a client of theirs, because I have a history with eating disorders. And so I told them, I was like, this is like really true. It's really triggering that I'm vomiting all the time because it's just bringing back memories I don't love Mm -hmm. and be like this whole, like me gaining weight. I'm already so stressed about it. Like, is there any way that we can be kind of sensitive around this topic? But, um, that to be really frank, they just didn't really care. They were like, no, like this is what, this is how we do it bring, bring your food journal, write everything down that you eat. We're going to review it with you. Um, and if you gain more than what we're recommending, then you just can't deliver here. They are very like cut and dry.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I also recovered from disordered eating as many of our listeners have too. And it is very triggering, especially with food tracking, um, especially with nausea and vomiting, weight gain, embracing, like gr- a growing body in curves, it can be really, really challenging in pregnancy. So for those of you listening, like, hey, two of us right here in solidarity with you, and even if they don't allow it, like Meg said, right, I still encourage everyone to at least ask, can I not be weighed? Can I stand backwards? Could you not say the number? Um, I absolutely cannot share with you a food journal or document that. Um, but where you'll where they get you right, you can say a lot of those things in a hospital birth, right, and get away with mm-hmm. it because there's nowhere they can kick you out to, right? They have right. to serve you. You can refuse everything at a hospital, right? You can be like, nope, I'm going to eat no IV port. You're not going to weigh me. I'm not going to turn in my food journal. I'm not going to do the diabetes. You can literally say no to everything. You can be the highest risk, whatever, and they still have to take care of you. But at a birth Mm -hmm. center, they don't, right? They can say, sorry, sorry. If you're not going to play by our rules, then we're going to send you to the hospital. So what ended up happening at the end of your pregnancy?
1: So I went in for a, my 40 week check and I had gained 50, my, my, the rule was I could only gain 50 pounds based off my BMI. So when I went in for that check, I was 51 pounds and I thought surely like, they're not going to actually kick me out. Um, But my midwife, um, one of the midwives there was like, thought about it for a second. And she said, listen, I'm going to give you two days to lose this pound. And if you come back in in two days and the pound is gone, I'm going to let you stay. But if you come in and you have either gained any more weight or you're the same weight, we are risking you out, and you have to deliver in the hospital.
0: Oh, that's such an unsafe conversation for someone with a history of disordered eating.
1: Right. So I literally like left there, and I was like, I have to starve myself and take laxatives and cut my hair and wear um, a bikini into the office next time, even though it's February. Because I am not willing to give up my plan. And I I wanted to deliver here. You guys are my midwives. Like, I have everything. I've done all the classes. I I just did everything I possibly could. I was like, I'm not giving this up. So that's what I did. I just, like, didn't eat anything, didn't drink anything that morning. I was just trying to do anything to decrease my weight. And I wore this, like, little tiny maternity dress in there with biker shorts on. And, um, yeah, I lost the pound and a half. And uh then they said we were gonna do a non-stress test on you and they did this, yeah, they did a non-stress test. I'm like, oh your fluids are really low. We're gonna induce you anyway.
0: Like, couldn't they have done that like the day before? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep, yep. So yeah. So I was just like, oh, so my fluids are low. That's not shocking <laughs> because I haven't had anything to drink and I've had anything to eat in the last few days. So it just kind of felt like um, I don't know if this is true. This could just be my own. Um, insecurities, but it kind of felt like they were relieved to not have me there. And they're like, oh, well, now we have something we can risk you out of.
0: Oh, that breaks my heart for you, Meg. It really does. But also a critical piece of your next stories, right? So, Oh yeah, 100%. But I do want you to tell Flora's birth story though. Um, yeah, yeah. So you're what Meg's talking about you guys is AFI amniotic fluid index. And you get it when you're doing a, a BPP, a biophysical profile and an ultrasound and they're me- there's four little pockets and they're measuring those pockets. And based on what gestation you are, the amniotic fluid levels are somewhere between like, let's say 12 and 26 centimeters. Okay. Well, as you go on in gestation, that goes down. So if you have 26 centimeters of fluid at 40 weeks, like that means that you have excess fluid. If you have like only six or eight centimeters of fluid, that would mean that you would have low amniotic fluid. And these terms are polyhydramniosis and oligodramniosis, all these fancy words. So what they were saying is they were saying like, Meg, you have low amniotic fluid. What gestation were you?
1: I think I was 40 weeks and three days.
0: Okay. Do you happen to remember what your AFI was? No clue. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you it was like probably less than six. Okay. (laughs) But that makes (laughs) sense. Like, I mean, that would be like probably eight or six or below would be probably the number that they would risk you out of. And that is absolutely possible, you guys, because Meg was dehydrated. So- the more hydrated you are, the more amniotic fluid you make, the more your baby pees and makes more amniotic fluid, you know? And so um, one of the things is to make sure that when you go in for these ultrasounds, that you are very well hydrated, which Meg wasn't able to do, right? They kind of That's backed so you up dehydrated. against her. I know they just backed you up against a wall. So like, how
1: do you lose? How do you lose weight? Like when you're that pregnant in two days, like I couldn't even. Even now, if you told me I had to lose a pound by tomorrow, I'd be like, "Uh, like,
0: you know what I mean?" Right, like you said, laxatives.
1: Right. Yeah, right. I was like, uh, I, I mean, I have really long hair. I almost cut all of my hair off. I was like, that is, at least has to be half a pound.
0: <laughs> so, uh, it's so crazy. I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, So they just sent you over to the hospital
1: then. Yeah, so they said um, go home, have a really good meal. Thank God, because I was starving, <laughs> and and drink some water. <laughs> yeah, I oh I, I was just chugging water when I left there, and I got um I got my hospital bag ready, and my Cam, my husband and I had a really nice dinner, and then we checked into the hospital, and I just had to. It was actually really sweet. I think I was disassociating in that moment because my my disappointment and my shame was so high that I had just gotten risked out and I had failed the process. And I didn't want to deal with it. And so I remember getting checked into my hospital room and I was just staring at a wall and I look over and my husband is like wiping tears away from his own eyes. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what happened? And he just was like, I'm just, I'm so sorry. Cause I just, I know that this is what you wanted and you did everything you could. And I just I just feel for you. It was like he just had like sheer empathy for me in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it was so healing because I felt like my whole pregnancy, there was no empathy. There was just no empathy. And so to have someone like crying my tears for me, I feel like I was able to just grieve my birth in that moment and be like, this isn't how it was supposed to be. But also like I just felt so grateful that I had the partner that I had. And I was like, we can do this. We'll, we'll, we'll do it their way, but you know, it's, we can do this and we're going to be okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were seen and you were heard by at least one person and that can make all the difference in the world, whether that's your partner or an amazing labor and delivery nurse or a doula or a friend, like, but really you just need that one person to say like, Meg, I see all the hard work. I see all the times you throw up. I see the sacrifices that you made
1: to grow this baby like,
0: you know. Oh, I
1: think- Oh yeah. It yeah, it, to have one person be person be empathetic like the most important person in my eyes, you know, is just it was what I needed to start the process because that process was
0: Yeah. Pretty intense. (laughs) Yeah. And at that point you're being asked to drive yourself into your mammalian state for primal birthing. That's hard to do. And just like, they are like snap our fingers and get induced and like, and you're supposed to just switch your brain into like mammalian self, you know? And that's hard, hard to do. So um, when we start an induction, they typically will do a vaginal exam and that tell you if your cervix is very ripe or if you need cervical ripening. Um, did they start you with cervical ripening or did they go straight to Pitocin?
1: Yeah, so the night before they um, they checked me, I was like not dilated at all. I was not effaced at all. I just, my body was not even close. So they, um, she offered to do a cervix swipe. So I got my cervix swiped and then right after they inserted um, a cervical balloon which was um, excruciating. And after she was done, she I remember her looking at me and saying, I don't think I'm ever going to do a cervix swipe and a cervical balloon back to back. I think this was a bad idea because I was like arching off the bed when they were putting that balloon in. Yeah. And um, the, the point was is to leave the balloon in overnight and hopefully like help dilate me. Um, which she's like, it'll probably fall out overnight because you'll dilate. But I woke up the next morning with it still in because I think I'd only dilated like one centimeter.
0: Okay. the It depends on how much they fill um, the balloon. It's called a cook catheter. And as a balloon on the top part of your cervix, and then a balloon on the bottom part of your cervix, and it puts pressure both ways on your cervix to efface it, to thin it, and then to open. But it depending on how much fluid they put in there, it will typically fall out when you're four to six centimeters dilated. So Uh. it can stretch you to four to six, but if your body's not releasing a lot of prostaglandins, if your body's not ready, then your cervix is like, no. Um, also for you guys listening, if you've ever had a leap procedure or any cervical biopsies or a previous abortion, DNC, DNE, e anything, a cerclage where we've gone near the cervix, it is possible to have scar tissue on the cervix because the cervix does not regenerate. And so if you have scar tissue on the cervix, sometimes it takes, like the balloon doesn't want to break up that scar tissue. And so that can happen too. So you wake up in the morning and you're like, shit, hey, balloon, still, still yep. here. So, oh, yeah. Um, and they don't want to keep it in more than 12 hours typically because of it could, lots of different risks, right? Irritating the cervix, swelling the cervix, breaking the water, infection, just all different things. So did they
1: go ahead and drain it and take it out? They drained it, they took it out, and then they started a a Pitocin drip.
0: Okay. Oh, surprising. But this was also eight years ago, right? Medicine changes quickly. mm -hmm, This is seven years ago. Seven years ago. I was like, listen, medicine changes very quickly. At what I would say a failed Cook catheter... If any of you guys want to speak up and advocate for yourself, you could ask for Cervidil or attack, which are prostaglandins that are additional cervical ripening agents, and then do one of those things with like maybe some breast pumping and see if that happens. But honestly, the most effective way to induce someone of the tools that we have is typically Pitocin. So they just started it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, they they were kind of um, gracious to me in the sense of they said, we're going to start you off really low and we're not going to like just flood you with this and we're going to bump you up as you go. So I can't remember what the units were, but they started low, I think at around like 6.30 in the morning. And by the time it was noon, um, my doula arrived and I like really needed like help getting through the contractions. So I do remember twice they had to Stop the Pitocin for certain reasons. I think one time the needle infiltrated and it was like going right into my tissue. Oh,
0: and so, no. once
1: they, yeah, it was so gnarly, <laughs> but once they stopped Pitocin, my body that stopped laboring, like I would like full on, just go back to like normal, normal life. And that was so bizarre to me that I almost felt like they were plugging my contractions in.
0: Yeah. So I often will tell people, Meg, that there's an induction and then there's augmentation. So sometimes we use Pitocin, not sometimes, we use Pitocin to induce, but at some point your body will catch up and your body will start laboring. And at some point induction does become an augmentation. And some people will then turn off the Pitocin and their contractions will keep going. I actually think that like, that was probably like a good check-in for you. Like, okay, my body isn't doing this right now in this moment. And then they start the Pitocin over. How frustrating though for you?
1: Yeah, I just didn't really know how long I was, I really like didn't want to get an epidural. So I just was like trying to cope, which of course, you know, as a doula, like trying to cope with Pitocin contractions are just insane. And I, by the time I think it was six in the afternoon or 5.30, um, my blood pressure was so high. They kept just, not, I don't want, threatening. They were threatening me at this point. They were like if you do not get your blood pressure down, we're going to have to start talking about C-sections. So, I think that your best bet is to get an epidural right now so that you could potentially decrease your blood pressure because you're just you're, it was just it was so high. They were like you're risking yourself to to have a stroke.
0: Yeah. And that is very true. Pain increases our blood pressure. If your blood pressure was increasing that much, it also tells me that you probably had gestational hypertension or were borderline preeclamptic because like, does that make sense? Like pain is only going to increase your blood pressure so much, but like Mm -hmm. increasing it, like, I just don't want people listening to think like, oh gosh, if I'm in pain, I could have a stroke or C-section. You could if your blood pressure goes so high, but it we only get to those really dangerous levels when it there's more of an underlying cause on with the pain, right? Right. So, did they ever talk to you about preeclampsia or gestational hypertension?
1: No, they never brought that up. They just brought up um, either going on magnesium or getting an epidural because it was um, around when. I was having the contractions that my blood pressure would shoot up, but it never got over 200, which is good. Yeah. But they just, it was trending up. So they're just like, you need to like, you need to get a game plan together on how you're going to bring it back. Because they kept saying, try to bring down your blood pressure. I'm like, how do I try to do that? They're trying to get me to like, relax, like in bed, like while on a ball on Pitocin. And I was like, I'm sorry, it's not working. This is not working. I can't relax anymore than I'm trying to relax right
0: now. <laughs> You're right. It's like, well, the only way I can accomplish this is if you turn off that damn Pitocin and let me go home, then my blood right. pressure will come down. <laughs> so, and Meg's totally right, you guys an epidural does drop your blood pressure and it does take away the sharp pains so that you can more easily relax, right? As Meg learned in the business of being born, though, it often can lead to these cascade of interventions. One intervention can lead to another intervention. Um, But sometimes it's just one, but right now, Meg, here we are. One intervention to the induction, to the Cook catheter, to the Pitocin, to the, and you know, and now the blood pressure. So you're already starting to see in real life in your own experience what the reality of what was happening to.
1: So, what did you choose oh, yeah. to do? So I asked them when, when they started saying like, all right, like I remember that I had one contraction where, or one blood pressure reading where I was getting close to 200 and that's, they could just tell, they were like, yo, like you got to figure something out. So I was like, all right, well check me, check my cervix. Like we'll see how far I'm dilated. And I'll never forget the poor nurse. She, or I can't remember who checked me, but I remember her being like, you're almost a five. And I was just like, gutted. I was like, forget it. I was like, and I, w- I remember walking. I, I had, I, I walked from there into the bathroom. I had one more contraction in the bathroom. And then I walked out and I was like, listen, don't try to talk me out of this. Don't say a single, I was talking to my husband. Don't say a single word to me, but yes, I'm getting an epidural. I know I've told you to try to talk me out of it. But don't say another word besides getting that anesthesiologist and giving me an epidural right now because this is not worth it. <laughs> yes.
0: Oh, and and it's really true. Like sometimes people will have a code word or something, but like your partner knows when you like. I'll often defer to the partners. I'll say like, "Is she serious?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, she's serious." <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, what do you think about the epidural?
1: Yeah, the epidural. I mean, the my anesthesiologist had a hard time getting it in. That that was um, that kind of actually surprised me because my husband was like, "That was the worst part of your whole birth was watching you get an epidural." Because he kept um, he's like, uh, "You know, let me know uh, what side. You let me know if you feel anything in each side." I'm like, "My left side, my right side." Like he kept, and then he got like blood in the catheter, and he had to pull it out and like do it all over again. So the process in epidural wasn't smooth sailing, um, but once it actually got into my system, I. Oh my gosh. Instantly was not in pain anymore. I was like, just returned to my normal self, talking to my best friend, talking to my doula, my husband, took a nap, woke up from my nap. And yeah, I had like basically dilated the rest of the way within just like a few hours.
0: And that's the beauty sometimes of the epidural right there. When it works, it works so well right but it does remove oh you from it does remove you from some of the experience um but the fact that you were able to take a nap and rest your pelvic floor and i'm assuming your blood pressure came way down when the pain went away and the epidural naturally just drops your blood pressure okay so they are like did you feel pressure did you like did they just check you and tell you it's time to push like how did that happen
1: yeah. So I, um, you're right. My blood pressure went way down. Um, and I woke up from a nap. This was probably around like nine 30 or 10 woke up from my nap. And, um, I kind of had like the shakes and I kind of felt like a little bit nauseous. And I was like, Ooh, I think this is like signs of transition. I think it might be transitioning right now. Um, so I, whenever, I don't remember when we got checked, but probably like 45 minutes later they came in and they checked me They're like, Oh yeah, you're like, you're 10 centimeters dilated. You're ready to push if you want to start, which was like so bizarre to me to think that. Cause I had prepared mentally for a natural birth. I was like, it's so weird to be told, like, oh yeah, you could like push your baby out now. And I was like, really? Like that's how it works. Like I just start pushing and then I'm a mom. Like this is so weird.
0: <laughs> but you are so right, Meg. You were in transition. Um, when we have an epidural, it sometimes takes our brain out of the equation, right? We're like, oh, I'm gonna chat with my friends, I'm gonna take a nap, I'm gonna do this. But when you start shaking and you feel nauseous and you feel pressure again and there's um or hot and cold flashes too like yeah your body is physically going through transition even if you're like your brain might not be totally connected to that experience with an epidural but you nailed it when you when you called it so as a doula i prefer my clients start pushing when the baby's really really low like 10 plus 1 plus 2 were you like okay I'm I am ready to push I want to do this or did you want to take a nap and wait a little longer
1: looking back I wish I would have waited longer I wish I would have like let my body kind of labor the baby down more um but I didn't when they said that I kind of like felt excited and so I was like yeah like let's start pushing and it was you know and you know this it was um I was not what <laughs> I couldn't feel where to push so I was pushing into my head and not into my bottom. And I had just totally botched like the first 30 minutes. I don't think I was effective at all until I was able to reframe what pushing was. How did you reframe? So they told me to push like I was pooping, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which was like, if you know me, like I'm so... Um conservative when it comes to things like that. Like I do, my husband and I are like, we don't even like pass gas in front of each other. And so the nurse was like, push like you're pooping. And I imagine like just every, everything that he was doing was repeating whatever the nurses and the doula were saying. So he's like, push like you're pooping. And then I just remember looking at him and we both like kind of giggled. And then I was like, okay, I think I can do that. I think I know because you're numbed, right? So I had a little the little presser thing to, to um, kind of ease off the epidural if I wanted to. And so I could, I was starting to get a little bit of feeling back. And so yeah, I started pushing to my bottom and then I could hear, I could hear the room, like the energy change or like, good. And they were like saying good instead of all right, you know? <laughs> and, um, and that made me feel really good to finally be like, Oh, am I pushing right? Is it, are things happening? Cause I think a lot of women in labor, I've just heard this with my friends who are also in labor when I've been their birth support as they're like, nothing's happening. Is it like, nothing, nothing's going on down there. But they were like, no, it is like, it's working. Like you're, you're, I can see your head, you know? And each like each push was just like, I just gained more and more momentum and it just got really exciting.
0: Yeah. I think when you like finally find your push, it is like, Oh yeah. And I mean, I'm even guilty of that as the doula, like changing my tone, Like, okay, great work. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, go. Like, it is exciting when you start to see the head emerging. Um, Meg, I was totally like you with my first. I had an epidural with my first and unmedicated with my second. And on my first, I remember they were like, okay, well, you're 10, you can push or you can like take a nap. And I was like, wait, you just told me I can push my baby out. Like taking a nap is like not an option. And I was, I probably pushed for like four and a half hours or something ridiculous because I was so excited. I was like, well, I'd rather just like be doing something to like meet my baby than just like taking a nap. I was, once they told me it was go time, I was like, no way, let's just do this. How long do you think you pushed for?
1: I think I pushed for an hour and a half. So it, it, and of course, like when you're pushing, I don't know, to me, time was flying. I just, I felt like I pushed for 30 minutes, but I think I pushed for about an hour and a half.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a relatively short period of time to push for a first time you know, you're going into this, you've never pushed before and you have an epidural. Like that's like, I'd say on average, it's probably like two hours. So.
1: Yeah. I was, I was actually impressed too. I could not believe that. Like, I couldn't believe how quick that whole process was. Yeah. Did she emerge like
0: pretty easily? Like, you know, like, did you have any tearing? Like, how did the actual delivery go?
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. I just, I love birth so much. It, even, even with, you know, having to grieve what I wanted. It was so incredible. I could, just, I remember like it was yesterday, her head coming out and like feeling her slide out of me. I, I did tear. I think I had like almost a second degree tear. So I needed quite a bit of stitches, but she delivered so well. And I just like will never forget that feeling of when they put her on my chest and like touching her for the first time, mm-hmm. like cupping her little slimy butt, which she meconium pooped in like seconds later. But yeah, she was perfect. I mean, she came out just perfect. And um, they had to do a little bit of stitching on me, which ended up being, I think, more the the tearing wasn't that painful. The recovery was more painful for the stitches, but yeah, she came out just great.
0: I like echo what you just said about that moment, right? Like, I don't think there's like a drug or a drink or an experience. Like, I don't think there's anything in this world that can match. The euphoria of holding your baby on your chest, like after all that hard work, too. You know, and I mean, and I mean, hard work. Like even if you had a C section, like hard work of pregnancy, of like growing a human, and then they just put them on you for the first time. It's like
1: it's oh my gosh, describe it. I know. I'm just like covered in goosebumps right now. I just it's there's just nothing like it, and like there's just nothing like meeting such like an influential person for the first time. you like, like your babies influence you. I feel like more than anyone else in the entire planet. And to like meet your baby for the first time, each one, I just so distinctly remember being like, like telling them out loud, like I'm your mom. Like I'm your mom. Like I get to meet you. It was just it was so surreal.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mine's on video. And I think I say hi, like a thousand times.
1: I'm like, hi, hi. Oh my
0: God. Hey buddy. You know, (laughs) it's like, I mean, I just like the best, they say the best first date ever, you know? So did you encapsulate your placenta, ingest it, plant it? Did you do anything with it?
1: I did with my last birth, but no, with Flora, I didn't, I didn't do anything with hers. We were so budget uh, conscious (laughs) Mm -hmm. then that we just, I just couldn't like bring that into our budget. But I, um, I wish I would have.
0: Yeah. Well, you're a homesteader now. as uh, so um in like a quick 15 minute phone call, I could teach you how to do it for people in your area. oh yeah. <laughs> I like I was like, I do them um, in my kitchen with my mom and it's so fun and it's pretty easy once you get the hang of it too. So we can we can always have that conversation if you would like to. Yeah.
1: To I'm getting a freeze dryer that. soon, so I could freeze dry oh, my yeah.
0: next time. <laughs> you know what? Like there There's a whole movement on freeze-dried milk. Have you breast milk? Have you seen this?
1: I have. And I am like so excited. My best friend's about to have her baby in a few weeks and I'm going to be freeze-drying so much breast milk. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh. I've been, see, I'm going down these like Instagram reels of freeze-dried breast milk right now, you guys. Just look up the hashtag, you know? So you have this beautiful birth, even though it's completely opposite of what you envisioned and what you dreamed and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then you get pregnant again. So how did things change for you for your second pregnancy?
1: Getting pregnant again. Amazing. I just, I'm like, I'm just so blessed that that just has never been um, a struggle for us. And I had, uh, HG again, but this time around, I felt like I was more prepared than the last. So, um, the vomiting only lasted until about 25 weeks, which was just a huge or 26 probably, but it was just a much better than the last time. Cause it was only half my pregnancy that I was that miserable. But, um, I knew from the get go, I was like, I'm not going to be doing that birth center again. No way. I would actually rather do a hospital birth and go back to that birth center. Um, But I found a midwife, there was a brand new certified nurse midwife that my insurance company, Tricare, because I was under, you know, military insurance, they covered it or they they reimbursed most of it. And so then I was like, all right, like if my insurance can cover most of this and I vibe with her, I just want to check her out and see what's going on and see if I can be eligible for a home birth. And, um, she feels like a family member at this point. She was just, she was amazing. And I remember on our very first appointment, just feeling so confident in the ability to birth at home. My husband was very on board. Um, every single question we asked her, she was so prepared for, and we had an amazing experience with her. She delivered my first and my second, and she was just incredible.
0: Were you in this house that you live in now?
1: Right, right, right oh. in front of me, right in front of where I'm sitting. So we had both of my other two babies.
0: Oh, I love it. You guys, I know those of you listening aren't looking at Meg right now, but I just love when I'm interviewing someone and I'm like right there in this space, that's where it like the magic happened, you know, were your um, midwifery appointments done in your home?
1: Some of them, the the, the, late ter- the later ones when I was, I think, 34 weeks and beyond were done in my home. But um, I drove out to her, she had a little office that I would drive out to for my appointments. And she had like a little kiddie area where like my, you know, my firstborn could play. And it was just really sweet, sweet times.
0: Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about the weight gain. Did she make you weigh or did she say, no, I don't care about that?
1: She did make me weigh, um, but she would let me weigh myself and just report back with a number And I warned her about my birth with um, my first baby and how I gained a lot of weight even when I was really sick. And um, she said, she just was like, I'm not going to risk you out unless I think that you are better off delivering in a hospital than here. So your weight is not going to be as much of a factor as it was at the birth center. She's like, unless I feel like you really like need to be at the hospital, I'm not going to risk you out. So she gave me just A lot of peace of mind because you know, naturally I went in very skeptical being like, listen, how permanent are you gonna be in my in my birth? (laughs) Right. If I'm and I did gain over, I gained I gained probably 55 pounds when I delivered Clementine and she was fine. She's like, you know, you I can tell that you're healthy and that you're safe and I'm not gonna, it's not gonna be an issue.
0: My sister and I have a joke that it's called our delivery weight, right? So like for both of hers, she weighed the exact same amount that I weighed and also like basically all four of our babies, we weighed the exact same amount on the day we went into delivery. It was like crazy. And I, I joke whenever anybody tells me they gained 50 pounds, I gained 72 pounds.
1: (laughs) And yeah, honestly, I probably gained more like that with my first, but I was just so dehydrated that I didn't register.
0: (laughs) I probably started out my pregnancies, like for me, maybe a little underweight. And then I like just really took off. I really enjoyed eating in both of my pregnancies. Lots of Dairy Queen. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh it was so it was for me after a history of disordered eating I really enjoyed letting go and actually like I enjoyed gaining weight and like being like having a reason and excuse to be like yes feeling like these, you're allowed to yeah I was like look at these boobs like I'd never had before <laughs> like this is great so I, in my opinion As a doula who's seen 1,500 deliveries in 20 years, I believe 55 pounds is a very healthy amount of weight to gain as long as the focus is on, like we talked about nutrition, right? Are you getting in those mangoes? Are you getting in spinach? Are you getting in the proper nutrition? And if you are, then you guys, I really just don't want you to get hung up on the, the weight number. You know, and oh yeah, this birth story is just a testament to that, right? Your midwife saying to you, "Meg, you're healthy. I'm not worried about it." Um, did she have an assistant, or did
1: you have your doula again? Like, how did that work? Yeah, she had a birth assistant. Her name's Deborah, and um, she's amazing. And I had um, my best friend at the time um, was there for me as kind of like an unofficial doula and my mom. So my mom and my best friend were there for both my births.
0: Wow. Okay. And then I clearly, I know your husband was there and was Flora involved?
1: Flora wasn't in, actually, none of my kids were involved in any of my births. Um, But I also had a birth photographer and she was, she's like one of my best friends. And so she was there almost all my births. Um, So I guess I technically speaking, had kind of a big birth team, but it didn't feel big when I was delivering. It felt really small and tight. Yeah. So
0: tell me about the birth. How did you know you were in labor?
1: Oh man. Okay. So I went to like 41 weeks with Clementine, and my midwife asked me if she wanted me to to swipe my cervix, and I said yes, and she swiped my cervix. And the next day, I I kind of was like cramping all night, Um, but I didn't know what natural labor felt like. I didn't know what going to the labor felt like. So I was definitely like in denial, and I had actually a big Bible study over that night. And I'm on my birthing ball and I'm like, you know, doing the Bible study. And, um, they started like looking at me funny. And I realized that like, I kind of was like, I guess taking pauses or breaths or making funny faces and without saying anything, like the men in my Bible study, like started like picking up my coffee table and like moving it out of my room and like clearing out like the kids toys that was out there. And I'm like, no guys, I'm not like, this is not the real thing. And they're like, okay, but we're just going to clear out your living room just in case it is. But like everyone else, apparently knew that I was in labor, and I was just like, <laughs> no, act normal. We're just we're just hanging out and fellowshipping. No big deal. Oh my gosh, and, I um, love it. I know it was so funny. Like looking back, being like, oh yeah, I guess I was because it. The, the funny thing with labor rates, right, like it's not linear. So I was kind of having these contractions. I got a full night of sleep, and I was woken up at like four thirty with this like massive contraction. And then I like went back to sleep. And then I was woken up like maybe two hours later with like a big contraction. And then I didn't contract probably for like, four hours after I woke up. And I thought I was so defeated. Cause I was like, Oh, my gosh, this is prodromal labor. Like I am not actually in labor. But something switched about four hours later. And then my contraction started just coming back to back. And I was like, Oh, I think it's happening. Like, that's when I finally accepted it. I was like, oh, I think I'm actually going to have a baby today. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like
0: for at least 12 hours, your body was just kind of like slowly kind of just getting warmed up, you know, getting ready yes. for it. Um, When did you call everybody? Like, when were you like, okay, birth photographer, midwife, best friend? Like, when were you like, okay, I think I need people here?
1: Yes. So I think, let's see, I think it was around... Noon that I realized like oh I'm actually like in in uh, labor right now and by two I had called like my birth team I called the babysitter to come and pick up my daughter and um my, my actually my my both of my home births were almost identical in story except for my second home birth um, I drank castor oil to induce labor and because the cervix stripping wasn't working but for both of them I had four hour labors. And I called my people about two hours in. And I think even both times I told my midwife, my birth photographer came over because she's one of my best friends. And like my, my best, my other best friend was there. My mom was already there, but I told my midwife, like, don't come yet. Cause I just assumed it's going to be a lot longer. And both times my midwife said, okay. And then left and came over anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's a
0: good midwife. She's really good.
1: because She's the best. Yeah.
0: It's easier to come and assess and leave than like miss it essentially.
1: You yes. Know? 100%. Yeah. And she just, she was so, oh my gosh, she just is like the best. So she, she came over when I was in my uh, second home birth and um, I was like, oh, Cindy, like, no, I'm not that far along. Like you're going to be so bored. And she's like, oh, it's a gorgeous day. I'm going to go for a walk. Like I'm going to, I brought some lunch. Like you just, you just stay here and labor. And, don't even worry about me. And so she just like fully convinced me that she was just having the time of her life and that I did her a favor. And that was so good for my personality, being like a people pleaser. Cause even in labor, I'm like, what am I gonna do? Like, you're you, you know, your 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 day's ruined because of me. And she just sat outside of my porch and within an hour I was like hitting transition and she just popped right back in and she was like, I knew you were getting close. She's like, You didn't know it, but I knew it.
0: Yeah. And it's a lot of things of like the intuition of a midwife. And they're listening to your sounds and they're looking at the shape of your body and the shape of your belly. It's just a different training than like, let's say like a hospital OBGYN, right? So. 100%. Yes. Her intuition was so beautiful. I want to finish up Clementine's birth, but I I want to jump to Theo real quick. So you said essentially it was like very similar. What gestation were you with Theo, your third?
1: I was like 42 weeks. Oh, I think so I was you, a day from being 42 weeks. You just kept getting weeks. more
0: pregnant as your pregnancies went on.
1: Like right? I have like the, the gestation of an <laughs> elephant. Like I, I've never just gone into spontaneous labor. That's that's never happened to me.
0: <laughs> so they were doing um, like the membrane sweeps and then um, and the cervical massages and then that didn't work. So then you're like, give me the castor oil.
1: Dude, yes, I was having so much sex. There was so much nipple stimulation. We were doing all <laughs> of our homework. Like, I was doing everything I could possibly do. And, like, I not only was I not going to labor, but I felt like I could do jumping jacks. I was still walking three to five miles a day. I was squatting. Like, I felt no pressure. It, I just felt like I just felt great. My third pregnancy in particular was just great. So, I, um, this is kind of a little bit shy of me. I feel a little bit bad, but I asked my midwife at 41 weeks, can I drink castor oil? and get this going um and she was like no I don't think you should do that yet I think you should wait we'll we'll do some other things but I was getting nervous because yeah I know that she doesn't go past this my my certified nurse midwife doesn't go past 42 weeks so I was starting to get nervous I was like listen I want to give some wiggle room because I don't want to get risked out of your practice and um she was like no so then once um the 42 week line was coming up I told my husband I was like I'm not going to ask for permission I'm just going to do it and I'm going to drink castor oil and get this going because I don't want her to say no. And then for me to risk out. And when everything was said and done, um, she was like, you should have told me I would have said yes. Like you, you didn't have to like do it behind me because I, I admitted to her like moments after giving birth. I'm like, I'm sorry, Sydney, but I took castor oil. I didn't tell you.
0: Oh my God. I love you. Did you just Google
1: it? How did you know how much to take? I followed a lot of um, Mama Natural, Genevieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had her like week by week and I like watched YouTube videos and I like read her book and I felt like confident enough to try it by myself. And I also am like a big advocate for like body autonomy, right? Like you don't need anyone's permission. You don't need, any, you know, like, like, this is your body. This is your birth. Like you can, you get to make your choices. And so I kind of convinced myself, I'm like, do what you preach, Meg. Like, it's your body. Just make a decision. But looking back, I'm like, you know, she, 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 she even said to me, she was like, you know, um, Some people have really fast births on castor oil. You should like let me know the next time you're going to do that. And I was like, okay, sorry. <laughs>
0: Just in case, you know. Well, I'm going to give everybody the midwives brew since we're talking about it. Um, It's a very important distinction. You can mix it with anything you want. But this is my favorite recipe that I got from the midwives here that I love in my area. But it's two tablespoons of castor oil. And every now and then I'll talk to someone and they'll take two ounces on accident. And I'm like, whoop. <laughs> two ounces of castor oil is a lot of castor oil. So, two tablespoons of castor oil, two tablespoons of almond butter, and like one cu- cup of apricot nectar, mangoes, some just something really fruity. And then, um, if clearly if you're sober, you don't drink, don't add champagne, but something sparkly like a champagne, a bubbly, like something like that, it can just kind of help. You throw it back a little bit, so that's my midwife's brew. When I was pregnant and I took castor oil, Meg, I just I just took it. <laughs> it was like, oh wow, you're oh. and then like afterwards, I think I ate like chobani yogurt, and I was like, never again, never again will I eat chobani yogurt. It's just never gonna happen,
1: girl. It's like it's like motor oil. Yeah, I made a milkshake with mine. I I got chocolate peanut butter milkshake okay. or chocolate peanut butter ice cream, and I made a milkshake with it, and it did taste like motor oil, but it also tasted like ice cream. So I I didn't really fight the process. Yeah.
0: Okay. (laughs) And so did it worked pretty quickly? Like when did you start feeling contractions?
1: Yeah, I took it at 830 in the morning. I started contracting at 1230 in the afternoon. So it was like four hours of wait time. And then I had a four hour labor and it was my like best, smoothest, most amazing labor.
0: Okay. So now we're going to intersect Clementine and Theo's because yes, I got him. Kind of, I brought, no, I did it. I brought everybody up right to like the birth. Like how did the labor start and whatever. So will you just tell us like a little bit about Clementine's actual birth and then Theo's birth?
1: Yeah. So Clementine's birth was, was really awesome. The only thing that I think that like, I didn't really understand exactly what transition and what like, pushing and all these things were really going to feel like because I didn't have an epidural with Clementine. So there was more fear and less peace in Clementine's birth, um, than my second home birth, because I was, there was a lot of like anticipation. So my birth with Clementine was great. I, my husband was an amazing birth support. I remember getting into the tub, like probably right around transition time and, um, experiencing transition, like fully aware of my body And looking up at my midwife and just saying out loud, like, I feel really scared right now. And she was like, that's okay. You're like, she said something along the lines of like, just like, let go. And I remember having this crazy contraction and leaning back and I had fetal ejection reflux, which I didn't even know was a thing. And Clementine like shot out of my body. And I was so... Not expecting that to happen because no one had ever talked to me about FER. And so I thought that like I was going to make a choice to push. I didn't realize that my uterus could make that choice for me. And so when she came shooting out of my body, like obviously I was happy to meet her. I was very, very shocked. And I just kept being like, but how did this happen? Because I never pushed. So I just kept asking everyone. And no one stopped and was like you had fer this is what your body no one explained to me for a year i a year later i was explaining the story and someone was like oh you had fer i had that too and i was like there's a thing like that and then it took me down a whole different rabbit hole but yeah clementine came out it was a beautiful it was it was just it was a very um yeah just empowering birth i was like i did it i felt you know i just felt really empowered i had a little bit of a tear. They did like a running stitch, but it wasn't a very big tear or it wasn't very deep. It was just a little bit long, but it wasn't very deep. So I tore a little bit with her and, um, she, man, she just, she was my peace baby. She just latched and nursed and gained weight and was just, just was an amazing postpartum recovery with Clementine.
0: Oh, and she was in, like, she was born in the water. Yes. Yep. She was born in the tub. Okay. So when you say tub, do you mean like a birthing tub, like that your midwife set up in the middle of your living room? Okay. Because some people like mean a bathtub at their house, but like one of those beautiful circular birth tubs that like you and your husband could both fit in, you know, and plenty of room. Oh, I love it. Did you do the delay like where you bring her to the surface delayed or were you like, I'm ready to meet you right now?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I just, we, my husband was one who caught her. So he caught her and Aww. brought her up to my chest and it was, yeah, it was just surreal. It was, mm. yeah. She, she just came right up there and was just like, a, just like Laura, like crying and just ready to, ready to go just instant. It was just sheer joy.
0: Yeah. Now you had said you didn't encapsulate with your first and second, right? but you did not yeah, encapsulate so did. with Theo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you do anything special with that placenta? Like I'm. A, what happens to the placenta in home birth? All my home birth clients, I think, bury it in the garden or ingest it. So what did, what did you do with clementines or did your midwife take even, it?
1: Yeah. I just remember she put it in a brownie pan and I remember thinking that is... <laughs> Surreal to see an organ and something that I bake with, but yeah, I guess she just took it and disposed of it in her own way. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't do anything with Clementines either. Once again, it was more of like a budget thing for yeah. the second time around. But yeah,
0: yeah. Did you get someone to do it for Theo's, like for free, or did you budget for it? <laughs> no,
1: we we had a budget for Theo's, um, and it was actually really sweet because whoever did my placenta, like, was able to accurately guess Theo's weight and um Ooh, wow. based off of I guess the veins in it yeah. and she was like your placenta looks so healthy She was like he must have been at least 10 pounds and I was like yeah he was how'd you know wait no
0: way oh, yeah. oh my goodness okay will you share th- just a little bit of
1: Theo's birth story then oh yeah Theo's okay Theo's birth is my favorite to share about because I had read this book um supernatural childbirth three times which it talks a lot about Um, how there's some women who can have these supernatural births where they don't experience pain. And I was just like, that is BS because I read this book and I did all of this stuff. and all the hypnobirths, I did everything. And I can't, I was in so much, I I would consider my first two births very painful. Um, But I think that a lot of it was like mental, right? So like with Flora's, everything was new. With Clementine, everything felt new. It felt like a first birth in some ways because I'd never experienced birth like that. So with Theo, I just felt so so prepared and so empowered, um, that I felt like I was able to just relax and, um, train my mind to just really embrace the contractions and to not tense up. And I felt like I wouldn't say it was completely pain-free, but it was very close. Like I would, I would say that not until I hit transition, did I really feel super uncomfortable. And, um, that was, so that was amazing. So I like, I remember getting, no one thought that I was hitting transition and they were trying to delay me getting into the tub. But like, I knew when I was hitting transition with Theo, like, I just think that no one else really knew because I wasn't probably showing signs. And, um, I got into the tub, um, with Theo and I hit transition and I had probably four really powerful contractions. And, um, it, I love looking at these birth pictures too, like between my first and my second home birth, because. With Clementine, you could just you could see you could see it on my face. I was like, my eyebrows were intense, like my jaw was like everything was just like I just you know was holding on. But with Theo, I looked like I was sleeping in all my pictures. Like my eyes were closed and my face was relaxed. And even one when when I, when he was crowning, I there's a picture of me like this, and like I was like huge smile on my face and I'm like oh my gosh because I just knew it was happening. I was like oh I felt this huge surge and I felt this kind of kind of fear set in and I was like. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have him soon. This is what happened with Clementine. And same thing. I felt this huge like contraction and I leaned back and um his head was out. Like my body just like pushed his head out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, it's happening again. This is the FER thing I heard about. Like this is like my body's gonna do it. So I his head's out and I look at my midwife and she looks at me and I was like, Do you want me to to try to push? Cause at this point, like I said, like I never really had to. And she's like, well why don't you just like wait for the next contraction and see what happens. And so the next contraction I did push a little bit, but like, you know, not a lot. My body kind of did it for me. And yeah, the shoulders came out and he came out and like, he was so chunky. Like he, okay. Technically he was only nine pounds and 12 ounces. um, But that's because she didn't weigh him for like a solid hour and a half after he was born. And he had like peed and pooped and everything um, by that point. So I like to say he was my 10-pound baby, but he wasn't technically a 10-pound baby.
0: Oh, he's a 10-pound baby, all right. So (laughs) welcome to the 10-pound club. And, you know, often at 42 weeks, they're going to be 9 and 10 pounds, you know, because they just had that opportunity to chunk up. So, oh, I have really loved hearing all of your stories, Meg. This has been really fun. Thank you. I learned a lot too. I love home birth. I love learning about it. I love like why people find their way to home birth. And um, the fetal ejection reflex is so cool. And I wanted to tell the audience before we jump off, I actually have only had two clients in my whole career um, have the fetal ejection reflex with an epidural. And One of them, like she just was with an epidural and she was sleeping and she just, I went to roll her over. Like I essentially just like opened her legs to kind of like just change her position. And the baby just shot out, and I was like, "Oh shit!" I'll guess here you go. <laughs> you know that is and, so amazing, like dream come
1: true. Right? Yeah,
0: I mean, she was really kind of freaked out. For I mean, because oh. it scared her, because she was like basically sleeping and then was holding the baby in her arms and was like, "Wait, I didn't even push," and I'm like, "I know." It's called a fetal ejection reflex. And then I had one other client that experienced it with an epidural, but many clients that experience it when they're unmedicated. um, It's possible if you have a a light epidural, I will say that you may have the fetal reflex. And yesterday, even I had a client who had, um, she was like 9.75 centimeters, meaning there's like an anterior lip on the front part of her cervix. And you know, I told her, like, I'm trained in spinning babies. We can do all these things. You're comfortable with an epidural. But if we do nothing, your body will resolve the cervix all on its own, you know? And she was like, okay, let's do nothing. <laughs> she was like, I'm tired. Like, let's do nothing. And um, maybe like 30 minutes later, she was like, I think I feel like my vagina pushing. And I was like... Yeah, I mean that's a reflex. It's really happening. So, ah, uh, birth's so cool, isn't it, Meg? <laughs> it
1: is. Yeah, it is so cool. And I, I want. I just want to like say that a lot of people probably feel a little freaked out when I say that I had a ten pound baby. But I just want to re- reassure anyone who has big babies out there. Like that was my easiest, least painful, least tearing birth. It was my third. But people are like, oh my gosh, that must have been awful. I'm like, no, he like came out. I had like the most, I had had such a teeny tiny scar uh, tear that I almost didn't even need stitches. And yeah, he was like my easiest. So Mm -hmm. I just always tell people that I'm like, don't be freaked out if you're measuring big. Like it does not mean that you're just going to have a harder labor and a harder delivery just because your baby's big.
0: Yeah. And I absolutely believe like God, the God of my understanding creates a baby and grows that baby to be the perfect size for the person carrying that baby. I also had a 10 and a half pound baby and easily birthed him. You know, I well easily air quote, I four and a half hours of pushing, but like, you know, I mean, easily birthed him, right? Like, yeah, let's not be intimidated by these these big, amazing, chunky babies. They'll slide right out if you're in a relaxed state and you relax your pelvic floor and you're not afraid. Mm. It's so important. So before we jump off, Meg, again, you guys, it's flourishing motherhood and then TikTok flourishing mother. If you were going to a baby shower today or you are making a registry, what's the one thing, the one product or the one gift that you would um, want to receive or that you would give that you want to make sure listeners know about?
1: There is this mat on Amazon. It's called Saunders Mat. And I know there are some bigger name brands that have these like giant like leather mats that are like $350 and just totally unattainable for people like me. But this mat is $100 and the the big one, the biggest one they have. And it is like, I wish I would have gotten this my first week because I use it everywhere. Like all the, if you're an outdoorsy mom and you go on picnics, you go to the beach, you go to lakes, you go, you you like to, you know, lay out in your backyard. Like this mat is so amazing because nothing can get through it. It's completely waterproof. It's really cute looking. It's a hundred dollars. And I um, have been using, I got mine three years ago. And I pretty much use it on a weekly basis. And I wish that I would have had it with my first baby because it makes going out and doing things with a crawler or with a newborn like so easy. Awesome. Do you have an affiliate link by any chance? I do. Yes. I have this linked, um If you go to my um, Instagram or TikTok on my bio, I have my Amazon storefront and I think I have a postpartum one And it has this and my runner up, which is the Even Flow Wagon. That wagon is so amazing. And I think that every mom should get that instead of a stroller. Okay. (laughs) Those two are on there.
0: Awesome. I'm going to go ahead and link that link in the show notes of this episode, you guys. So if you're listening and you don't have time to like write any of this down, just know later you can come back to the episode and you can link in the show notes Or if you can remember Meg with Flourishing Motherhood, you can go find that link in her bio. So, yes, Meg, thanks so much for being here. Congratulations on your beautiful babies. And please thank your husband for his service in the Navy.
1: Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you for interviewing me. This was awesome. I'm so glad that women have resources like you to listen to and prepare for.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, Have a wonderful day.